Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of My JavaScript Story. This week, we're talking to Tom Hodgins. Tom, do you want to say hello? Uh, thanks so much for having me on the show. Uh, hi, yeah. everybody. Yeah, I think I'm seeing Tommy Hodgins when I was looking. So is it? do you prefer Tommy? Or uh, yeah. All right, good deal. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. And uh, we talked last year about caffeinated style sheets. Yes. So yeah, I thought I'd just uh, check in and see if there's anything new before we jump in and talk about how you got into programming and all that good stuff. Yeah, uh, I've been continuing to research uh, extending CSS in the browser with JavaScript and uh, building some interesting tools that allow you to take advantage of ahead of time optimizations as well as runtime stuff. So work on that is definitely continuing and some really cool stuff you can do. Very cool. Well, this show, we talk a little less about the technology and more about the people involved. So um, I'm a little curious. Can you just give us a quick rundown on who you are, what you do? Um, yeah, all of that good stuff. Sure. So I'm Tommy Hodgins. Uh, I'm a front-end web developer. And right now, I'm mostly working with A-B testing. So the kind of work I do is taking an existing website and adding something to it or taking something away from it or making a change and then running an experiment to test whether that makes an improvement or not. And if it does, then people can implement that on the site. So that's what I'm doing most of the time. Right. And uh, so when you run these A-B tests um, and you're looking at the outcomes, are you looking at like the number of people who click through or purchase, or is it more along the lines of uh, performance and, you know, some of the things that you can kind of measure more objectively or, I mean, what, what kinds of outcomes are you really experimenting on? Uh, usually people are tracking some kind of sales. So the two mm -hmm. figures that they want are increased total revenue or like increased number of sales. Um, sometimes people will try to test things like increasing the amount of revenue per sale, but that one is trickier. Um, right. But some people could have like a goal, like they want signups. And so they're just trying to get more signups. Um, it's not always something that's commercial. That makes sense. And you do that for a company that you work for, or do you do that as a con on consulting basis? Or Yeah, I work with a company that has a team of consultants, and then there's a very small development team that implements these tests. Right. So I'm part of that development team. Awesome. Um, well, let's, let's roll back a little bit and talk a little bit more about your programming history, and then we can talk about how you got into caffeinated style sheets and stuff like that. Um, how did you get into programming? Yeah, well, I got into programming a few years after I got into JavaScript, actually, which sounds kind of backward. But as I was writing more and more code, I kind of began to feel the need for this fundamental skill. Um, for programming specifically, I see it kind of like a fusion between literacy 
and working with language and numeracy, working with math and numbers and logic. And so with programming, you're able to combine everything you know about language and math and logic into something that represents your mental model for thinking about something. And I was always into art and language, but not excited by math. So nobody taught me the foundations of that. So I just found myself needing to understand it so I could do my job better. That's interesting. Now, I'm kind of curious because you said you learned JavaScript before you learned to program. So where do you make that delineation? Uh, yeah, it sounds kind of funny. Um, it wasn't until I read John McCarthy's paper on a notation for how you could write a recursive function in math and kind of the rules that would let you solve that, even if the function calls itself and compute that into the end. And by the time you get to the end of his paper, you have this model for computation that lets you explain almost anything. And so I think it was that moment where I finally understood what programming was, um, kind of like from the bottom up. And so now with that understanding, you can look at a lot of languages and make guesses or you have some idea of what might be going on behind the scenes mm -hmm. and how to do what you want. Gotcha. So what kinds of things did you wind up doing then with JavaScript and CSS and kind of the front end technologies? Well, it's kind of funny. I've been tinkering around with web stuff for about 15 years and mostly doing front end stuff. So uh, it's hard to do that without touching PHP or without touching JavaScript. So I, I would say I edited those files or um, I could copy and paste and kind of make things work or patch things together, but I had no idea what I was doing. And so when I tried to learn JavaScript, one of the challenges was like, what do I use it for? What do I do? Right. Um, and so now I find I end up writing a lot of stuff in the browser to enhance websites or just to test my own thinking of something. And I also use JavaScript to build command line utilities, just little tools that I wish I had to convert a file or um, output certain thing or take data and turn it into something else. So I still kind of avoid or have skipped over backend web and just do like front end stuff and command line stuff. That's really interesting. But I guess if you're working on the basis of the A-B testing and things like that, if you have a backend system that collects your information and then you know, that you don't have to build, then I guess you can get away with a lot of that stuff because most of your changes are going to wind up on the front end, right? Yeah, absolutely. Everything that we deliver on the front end happens through JavaScript. So that includes any HTML or CSS changes. So that's been kind of a switch too, is even if I'm writing CSS to deliver it, I'm still going to package it up in JavaScript and that's how it ends up getting applied. Right. So most of your JavaScript changes, or sorry, most of your CSS changes are coming through as uh, CSS in JavaScript one way or the other? Yeah, and because of that, you can also take advantage. Everybody seems to be aware that you can take HTML and work with it dynamically in the browser, add elements, take elements away, and, and template the document that's there. And a lot of the same abilities are there with CSS. So sometimes I may end up, instead of overwriting or removing CSS, I might go in and change the CSS that's already loaded on there and like shift a media query breakpoint that was happening too soon or something. So it's not just like a write once, append only kind of thing. It's like an interactive living thing and JavaScript can let you work with that. Yeah, that makes sense. So once you got into JavaScript and things like that, have you always been on this Q, uh, not QA, A-B testing uh, kind of thing or have you done other things in your career as well? 
Uh, this is a more recent uh, specialization or focusing of it. I've been doing web design and web development for about 10 years. Um, originally started out with graphic design and I thought that I was going to be doing graphic design with just a few web components here and there, but it seemed like the demand for web was just constant and the demand for design wasn't as constant. And so over time I've just gone to web only and then focusing on responsive stuff and then now focusing on just little details of sites, not even entire pages. Gotcha. So how did you wind up working on things like uh, caffeinated style sheets and uh, uh, CSS in JavaScript and JavaScript in CSS? Um, I was curious how malleable the things in the browser were. So like the browser understands something about CSS, it understands something about HTML, but how much can you support yourself? Or if you want to add things to that or build something beyond what's there, how do you do that? And so I felt like I was writing a lot of JavaScript code or needing to learn JavaScript so I could write code that was mm -hmm. for styling purposes. And it, I wasn't writing it in CSS. It was being declared somewhere else. And so I thought like, instead of me writing this custom code every time for all these different pages, what if I could just teach CSS in the browser one time to do this cool trick? And then I could just stay in my style sheets, write my styles, and the browser would support it as though that was a feature. And so on that quest to trying to figure out how to support stuff, you kind of have to end up handling CSS better than the browser. And so that's a big challenge, and that's been a focus of a lot of my learning. That makes sense. So how do you go about learning that stuff? I mean, are, are there tricks to it, or is it pretty straightforward once you start diving into it? Uh, I think the big shift for me, I, I was focused on writing things in my editor for a long time. And especially with JavaScript and especially with client-side stuff, something that you can run in a browser, um, as soon as you can get it into the browser, like that's the moment where it really comes alive. And you've got this environment where all of the objects are available, you can look at them, um, you can kind of poke things and see what's there. And so for me, a lot of it has been just kind of having a conversation with the browser and it telling me what's available, it telling me what it knows about, and so I can learn about it and explore without even necessarily having a roadmap. Um, mm -hmm. But sitting in an editor, I wouldn't have any way to know where I could go, what next step I could take. So I think for me, it was really probably the, brow like the browser itself that taught me a lot of that. That's interesting. And, you know, I do a bunch of debugging on my apps and I use a lot of the browser tools. So it, it makes sense to me what you're saying because you can get the browser to tell you quite a bit, like you're saying, about what you're working with. So I like it. So is there a particular aspect of this that you're working on uh, learning better now? Uh, yeah, I've been noticing that a lot of CSS tools or things that work with it, whether they're preprocessors or bundlers, or even just things if you want to support styling stuff in the browser, uh, a lot of the tools aren't that accurate. And with a lot of the stuff that we know is coming, like the features that are either being supported in the browser or we know are gonna be supported in the browser, a lot of that breaks or doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So I've been kind of on a quest or coming to the realization that we need a better CSS parser and just like the basic building blocks to build better tools with. Um, but that's a little bit out of my league for my programming ability right now. So right. I'm just trying to find ways or trying to prove the need or show where things need to be improved. And hopefully we can have like a whole better generation of tools coming soon. 
Very cool. Do you have any favorite uh, resources for people to learn front-end technologies and, and things like that? Yeah, my favorite spot has been the Mozilla Developer Network, MDN. It's like the Wikipedia of web development, and you can get lost down a rabbit hole uh, learning all kinds of stuff there. Um, one thing that I did, for example, when I was learning about JavaScript arrays, I found out what an array was, and I went to MDN, looked at the array page, and then clicked every single method that was in the sidebar. And it's just like reading, if you read like some JavaScript library's documentation, it's just like that, but these are all the things that are built in and just available everywhere. So I'd say MDN is also a fantastic resource. Yeah, it's definitely a handy one out there. Um, so I'm, I'm also curious as we kind of dive into who you are and what you do. I mean, what, what is the rest of your life like? I mean, do you go hang out with your buddies after work and, you know, watch football or, you know, maybe you have a family at home and you hang out with them or, or what, what, what does life look like for you? Yeah, I work from home and I'm here with my wife and three cats. And so there's a lot going on here. Um, I spend a lot of time outside of work um, mentoring people or helping people with programming. Um, there's a few communities where I'm a moderator mm -hmm. in and just try to keep the community healthy and uh, also do a lot of research and exploring with a lot of these ideas and especially web standards, trying to learn as much as I can about other technologies and adjacent things. And so, yeah, a lot of my time is reading that or testing things out or talking to people and learning. Nice. Um, and what's your approach to some of the mentorship that you do? I mean, do you just meet people who need it and then um, help them out? Or do you more moderate groups of people and arrange meetups and that kind of thing? Or are you, are you more involved in other ways? Um, I'm often on uh, chat servers. So there's some communities on Slack or Discord or right. Telegram and other things like that. And a lot of these places will have people who might have a desire to help people or they might have enough skill that they can answer some questions, but not necessarily know the best way to help people or the best way to find the information. And so I think a lot of what I would consider the mentorship type things is taking people who have some of these skills and trying to point them in the right direction and show them um, where I've been able to find information and how I've been able to, you know, validate or prove knowledge that I have and um, well, hopefully create people who can help other people. That makes sense. And that mostly happens in your local community then, or? Uh, I would say mostly online. Online. Yeah. Are, are those online communities though local to Toronto or are they more? Uh, no, they're global. They're all over. Okay. And that's part of the exciting thing too, is you can collaborate with people from yeah. every continent. Very cool. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. So uh, what are you working on now? Uh, recently, I've been playing around with a couple different ideas. Because of the A-B testing, we build, we might take a half day or a day to build something and we run that code for a week and then we throw it away. And so it's kind of a unique position where you cannot accumulate tech debt. So 
uh, I've been using that to research and experiment with techniques and tools and kind of use that as a, a rapid iteration cycle for tool development. And some of the things that I've been working on are finding ways to support features in CSS that require some kind of JavaScript to run on the page. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that's become apparent is that we need some kind of dependency management for CSS. There's a lot of people who talk about dependency management for JavaScript and other code, but it's already the case that people write CSS that implicitly depends on other code or other libraries Mm -hmm. being present, but there's no way in CSS to declare, hey, this piece of code depends on something, and if you can't resolve that, please don't include it. And so then we also need tooling either in bundlers to resolve, build that dependency graph and resolve it at bundle time, or perhaps that's something that the browser could be aware of. And so that might end up looking more like ES modules than something centralized like NPM. But kind of figuring out the shape of what's needed there and how you can reference things and link them in and your dependencies have to be able to pull in dependencies and you have to figure it all out. Um, That's kind of something that I'm going to tackle in 2020. That sounds really interesting. And I would love to see something like that because, yeah, a lot of what I see, you know, I mean, whether it's based on something large like material design or bootstrap or something else, or whether it, you know, it's kind of built up off of this UI library and then um, this other set of UI components. And then you kind of bolt it all together with, you know, some final styling on top of all that. Yeah, it'd be nice to be able to say, you know what, my CSS dependencies are these. They load in in this order so that they'll cascade properly. And then off we go. Yeah. And also increasingly, um, we're getting new features like the layout API and paint API mm-hmm. and animation worklets. And so people are going to be able to bring their own custom layout. So like maybe you have a hexagonal grid, but you only want to use those styles if it can actually find that worklet. Otherwise, you have some fallback layout that's something else. Yep. Very cool. Now, what, what is this going to look like? Is it going to be like a... CLI tool that actually pulls it in modularly like uh, JavaScript does? Or is there going to be like some preprocessor that says, you know, because it seems like some of the preprocessors do that, but you have to pull in the dependencies on your own. Yeah. What form does it take? I think it might be something like a plugin for a bundler. So like right now Webpack is popular. It might be something that you could do as a Webpack plugin. And if it was client side, I think the only realistic way to get it done is it's something the browser knew about. I'm not sure that you could do it with your own client side JavaScript. I think it would have to be something deeper than that. Um, but what it might look like in CSS, perhaps you might have an at rule that surrounds a bunch of rules and allows you to declare URLs that it depends on. Um, I think there are some CSS preprocessors that will let you pull in other style sheets but I'm not aware of any that will let you declare a dependency on JavaScript or declare a dependency on uh, a Houdini worklet in a way that it would check with your other JavaScript bundling and resolve like everything. Um, So it seems that there's an extra piece missing from Webpack or missing from the browser right now. Yeah. I'd love to see that come, come about. So, uh, you said you were working on a couple of things. This is one of the things you mentioned. Are there other things that you're working on as well? Uh, yeah, there's a experimental CSS preprocessor that I'm working on uh, named Process CSS Demo. And it's just a very basic demo of something kind of like 
what post CSS is like. And it gives me a little workspace or a little area where I can test out ideas, but it is simple. It's, it doesn't go, um, you can't use all the features together with each other. Um, so right now there's just a, I think 24 or 25 plugins and they run in order and the order that they run in is significant. And then once it's done, it's done. Um, but the features that I'm showing or experimenting or trying to support in there are things that with a better parser and a better, um, something that has like a visitor pattern, uh, it'd be nice if we could parse CSS. And then as we crawl through it, all of those plugins go simultaneously, um, each operating on the different parts that they work on and not moving on until everything was done. So hopefully sometime this year we get a better CSS parser and I'll be able to take the things I've been working on and, and kind of make them fully real or apply in a, a more complex way. So that's the other thing that I'm working on. Cool. Um, very cool. So yeah. So how do we, uh, where do things go from here for you? So you're going to keep doing the AB testing. I assume you're going to continue to do the CSS work. Where, where do you think CSS is going to head? Cause it's changed quite a bit over the last 10 or 15 years. I think we have a pretty clear picture of where it's going in the next um, three to five years because um, the schedules are already made and people have already committed to what features they might be supporting in browsers and what they're focusing on. And with the rest of what's been specified, we have about 10 years of stuff that we kind of know we want and we'll get to eventually. And so we have a pretty good idea where it might be in five years or 10 years, but beyond that, there's no idea, at least not that I've seen. So I think what we're heading toward is, I think we're heading toward a language. Um, it's kind of like a shift, like when JavaScript went from ES5 to um, ES6, it was like a whole generation shift in tooling. I think that in the future, in the near future, in CSS, we're going to have custom user-supported rules, selectors, functions. Uh, if you want like a custom color function in CSS, you might declare the function name you want to use, and you might pick how, like what arguments you want to put in and how that interface works, and then just wire that up to some JavaScript that knows how to work with those colors. And so a lot of stuff that people do in preprocessors once will be something that you can do like in a living way over and over again in the browser and work with and modify. Um, so I think it's going to become a very interesting styling language in general. And I'm really curious what custom CSS syntax could be used for beyond styling web pages as well. I think it'll really become a custom language that we could put toward other applications. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. Well, I don't know if I have anything else to ask. Is there anything else that you're working on or thinking about or, um, you know, working through that I haven't asked you about yet? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I've always got uh, a lot of little projects, but uh, not a whole lot of big ones. Right. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up then. Um, is there, if people want to find you online or reach out to you in the meantime, uh, where do they go? Uh, I can be found on Twitter. Uh, my username is Innovati, I-N-N-O-V-A-T-I. And uh, I usually post about CSS or tech-related things. And so that will be kind of like a little update on what I'm working on or the latest experiments or ideas. All right, cool. Well, there you have it, folks. Um, let's go ahead and wrap up. Um, the last thing we do on the show is picks. Do you have some things you want to shout out about on the show? Yeah, I've got a couple of picks. All right, go ahead. All right. The first pick, I'm not sure if you've talked about it, is QuickJS. 
Mm -hmm. uh, it's an implementation of the current JavaScript standard in C. And it also has some extra math stuff added into it and custom features, operator overloading and stuff. And it's a little bit magic. So by itself, it runs JavaScript on the command line, kind of like Node or Deno. But it also allows you to embed JavaScript in C. And it also allows you to import and use C modules inside JavaScript. And you can compile JavaScript down to a really tiny executable. And then the last magic trick is you can compile it to WebAssembly and run it in the browser. So if you go to numcalc.com, like number calculator, they are using QuickJS with custom math extensions. Uh, and it's C compiled to WebAssembly, and then you can use it in the browser. And so I think that's pretty amazing. And then the second pick is language learning with Netflix. And that's a Chrome extension. And it's probably the most amazing example of a browser extension I've seen. Uh, if you have Netflix and you watch a video that has audio or subtitles for a foreign language that you want to learn, it adds an extra interface and puts the subtitles for both languages and has features so you can like pause after each sentence. And so I just think it's an amazing way that somebody's taken an existing website that's already good and just added a whole layer of value on top of it with a browser extension. I find that really inspiring. Awesome. That sounds amazing. And I love, I, I'm going to have to go check out QuickJS. That, that sounds really interesting as well. Yeah, it's made by uh, Fabrice Ballard, who made QEMU and is also famous for porting Linux to JavaScript. So it's no surprise <laughs> if there's like some hidden genius going on in there. It'll probably take smart people a long time to figure out what kind of a gift it is. Right. But that, sound, that just sounds cool. Yeah. All right. Uh, I've got a couple of picks here. Um, my first pick is a tool I've been using to reach out to people uh, online. It's called Gmelius. It's G-M-E-L-I-U-S. Um, it was kind of shown off to me by one of our guests on the freelancer show. And it basically just lets you automate outreach emails through your Gmail. Um, I used another tool a while back that kind of did the same thing. We had to sign into their system and then use their stuff. And it was kind of a hassle. This is just a plugin that um, works alongside your Gmail setup. And so um, I've really been enjoying that and it's, it's pretty awesome. So I'm going to pick that. And then I'm in the middle of watching the end of the man in the high castle from Amazon on Amazon prime. And I've really, really enjoyed that as well. It's really interesting to see kind of the, it's, it's an alternative history. I mean, there's some fantasy elements to it, but it's kind of an alternative history in which the Axis powers won world war II. Nice. And Anyway, so it's just been really fascinating to see how they translated some of the things that have happened in U.S. history into these other elements of history. And then at the same time, because it happened, it, it takes place in the 60s. Okay, so, you so know, it's, not it's, quite 20, it's 20 years after the war, right? Okay. And okay. Uh, yeah, so they extrapolate a bunch of stuff. And anyway, it's, it's pretty awesome. So uh, I'm going to pick that. Nice. I've heard of it, but I haven't checked that out. It sounds good. Yeah, it's really good. It, apparently, it's based on a book. I've had a number of people tell me the book wasn't as good, but I don't <laughs> well, know. I haven't read it yet. Um, as good as the series has been, I will probably go pick it up and listen to it on Audible. Um, nice. But yeah, I've been listening to a book on Audible too, but I picked it on previous episodes. But I'll shout out about it again. It's uh, The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. And it's, it's terrific. I'm really, really enjoying it. Um, I'm almost done with it as well. 
And uh, so, yeah, then I'll probably go pick up a nonfiction book because that's kind of my way. I, I listen to nonfiction, then I listen to fiction. But yeah, uh, really enjoying that. So I'm going to pick that. And uh, I suppose I should shout out one more. And it was funny because this one went to number one on Apple Podcasts. Um, I think Joe Rogan finally knocked it back down to number two. But it was really interesting um, to get a point of view during the um, American impeachment trial um, from some of the people on the, on the floor of the Senate. Um, it's a podcast by Senator Ted Cruz from Texas. And honestly, he talks about, okay, this is what the Democrats did well in making their case. And this is, what, this is what the Republicans did while making their case. And it's really interesting because usually when you hear from one side or the other, it's, well, here's why we're right and here's why they're wrong. Mm-hmm. And instead, he kind of dissects a lot of the process. And it's like, when this person did this, it helped their case. And when this person did this, it hurt the case, right? And so it's like, it's like, oh, this is really interesting because you kind of get to see the wheels turn and how people are thinking about things and you know, how it kind of works on the backside that you don't really get to see with all the grandstanding that everybody's doing on both sides to try and prove that they're right. So anyway, I'm going to throw that one out there too. It's called Verdict by with Ted Cruz. So anyway, that's all I got. Um, let's go ahead and wrap this one up. We will be back next week. In the meantime, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.